Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. This morning we want to title of our message is Anointed for Burial. As Jesus stood in the shadow of the cross, that would bring him face to face with the climax of his redemptive mission. And though he had forewarned the disciples of the crucifixion to come, he alone felt its weight pressing upon his human nature. The cross meant more than shame and torturous death. It was his destiny, purpose before the foundation of the world. And all of human history flowed to this great, one grand, decisive act when the incarnate Son would hang suspended between heaven and earth as the mediator between God and men. He alone represented both deity and humanity as both natures in all their fullness resided in this one person, Jesus Christ. Now the purpose of his coming would be fulfilled. The countless prophecies of Messiah the Savior would be fulfilled. Jesus Christ's passion begins as preparation for his death. And we've been leading up to these climactic chapters here in the book of Matthew. Our whole study of this gospel brings us to this point. The last three chapters of Matthew's gospel form his passion narrative, taking us through the personalities and the events and ultimately leading to the cross and the empty tomb. Matthew's been moving to this culminating revelation of eternal good news. And here we find the core of the gospel, the seemingly tragic report that turns out to be the good news of redemptive love. Matthew's account demonstrates that every detail follows the divine plan for saving his people and establishing his eternal kingdom. Nothing is left to chance or stroke of luck. Jesus Christ consciously and willingly faced the cross on my behalf as well as yours. He understood what lay before him. It's highlighted by one uninhibited act of worship that helped to prepare the Son of God for the dying on the cross. And we're going to look at what significance this act of worship is as we look at the first several verses here, the first few verses of chapter 26. Let's read our text this morning. You follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. And it says, And it came to pass... When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. 
and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. And he said, not on the feast, and they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box, very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. And when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye this woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, where whatsoever this gospel shall wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. Should have noticed first of all this morning is the first section of this text the prediction of Christ's death. The prediction of Christ's death. This is not the first time that Jesus has predicted his death. If you've paid attention at all these last two or three years, you'll notice that we have come across this prediction before. He's already alluded to it. He's already stated it plainly. In Matthew 16, to follow him would be to go the way of the cross. Matthew sixteen twenty four says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. In the next chapter, in Matthew 17, says in verse 22 and 23, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and on the third day he shall be raised again. In chapter 20, in verse 18 and 19, it says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. And we could go on and look at many other passages. The parable of the landowner brings together the prophecy back in chapter 21. It said, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the stoner, uh, corner. The Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25 points to his triumphant return, which would only happen after he successfully completed his redemptive plan. And so this prediction takes on a kind of an air of readiness. Christ pinpoints the day of his crucifixion. Again, look at verse 2. Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. The cross would cast a shadow over every moment, every thought, as Jesus Christ prepared for this decisive point of our redemption. And so we need to consider the details of this prediction. Notice, first of all, an 
a historical foreshadowing. A historical foreshadowing. Passover multiplied Jerusalem's population as much as tenfold. Thousands of worshipers and pilgrims would flood the streets and the alleys and the open spaces as a week-long festival would take place. It began hundreds of years earlier as the children of Israel prepared to leave the bondage of Egypt for the promised land. The Lord had appointed Moses to be the deliverer, a type of savior for Israel. He called upon Pharaoh to let my people go. But the stubborn, hard-hearted Egyptian king would have none of it. The Jews were his slaves and they were useful for his egotistic building campaign. He would not let them go from their labors. Instead, he heaped on even more. Moses demonstrated to Pharaoh that in spite of his great might as lord over Egypt, he served only by the... served only by the pleasure of the Jehovah Creator and the Lord of the universe. The plagues began with Pharaoh feigning repentance and humility, only to turn in stubbornness again each time. The final plague, the death of the firstborn, would prove to be the most devastating. The Egyptians had endured locusts and frogs and darkness and hail, but they could not bear up under the final plague. In every house and barn throughout the land of Egypt, the angel of death would strike down the firstborn man and beast. And through every house in Egypt felt the pain of death. The homes in the land of Goshen where the Jews lived had wiped the blood of the lamb on the doorpost or the lintel. And so the angel of death passed over those homes. Their firstborn were saved by the bloody death of the substitute, a lamb dying in their stead. And God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and He opened the Red Sea for them to pass over into freedom. To help them remember the night of deliverance and the mighty hand of God that freed them, the Lord instituted the Passover feast. His families gathered around the table to eat the Passover lamb. Bitter herbs and unleavened bread, they remembered God's deliverance from bondage and His mighty saving power. And so now Jesus tells His disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and celebrating Passover had become a part of their cultural heritage. But now it would take on a new and fulfilling significance What happened with deliverance from bondage in Egypt and deliverance from the judgment of the death angel only foreshadowed what would happen hundreds of years later in the death of Jesus Christ. It's good for people to be delivered from slavery and bondage. It's better, far better, to be eternally delivered from bondage of sin and the slavery to the devil. It's good to be delivered from the death angel. It's better, far better to be delivered from the eternal judgment of God. Passover lambs, hundreds of them, were quickly slain, their blood applied to the doorposts, and then they roasted them to nourish the pilgrims as they set out on their journey to the promised land. But the day would come when Christ, as Christ predicts, that one final Passover lamb would be slain, 
He said in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, For even Christ our Passover is sacrifice for us. The disciples would see the Passover fulfilled in Christ. So you have the historical foreshadowing. Secondly, you have the climax of history. What Jesus predicted would happen in just two days aimed for the climax of human history. Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. And since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, human history had worked its way to the cross. Through generations of men, the flood and the Tower of Babel, the rise and fall of kingdoms, God's promises and judgments on Israel, every detail of human history moved toward that decisive moment when He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And here's the crowning point of human history, the extraordinary act of divine compassion and grace, as God the Son and human nature would bear the judgment of the Godhead on the cross. Jesus predicted his betrayal in that phrase, is betrayed. Passive voice implies that someone else would hand him over in this act of betrayal. It's the same word used by Judas Iscariot in verse 15. What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? All along, Jesus had predicted that this betrayal would transpire. Again, the same word that's used in chapter 20 and verse 18. In the upper room, he made it clear, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Literally, One of you shall hand me over. Again, that's the same word in our text. And Judas Iscariot would forever bear the stain of being the one that betrayed Jesus Christ to the religious authorities. In the external or eternal decrees of God, he is appointed to this unholy task that played a part in the climax of history. Peter exclaimed, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Acts 2.23 His name will always be associated with deceivers and liars and traitors. Most likely, people will not name their little boys Judas. His name is but that much bad meaning to it. Religious leaders had their part, and so did the Roman soldiers. Yet all of it is to fit into the wise, gracious plan of God to redeem a people for himself. And the disciples expressed this so well as they prayed after being delivered from the same men who delivered Jesus over to be crucified. In Acts chapter 4, it says, For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And so I 
let's ask this important question. If the God of creation so orchestrated human history so as to its climax would be the death of His Son on the cross, then how has that affected your life? Have you trusted in God's only provision, Jesus Christ, for forgiveness and for life? You know, so many seek to find the climax of history in some other thing, or event, or person. They try to find it in some great sporting event. Wow, that was the greatest game I ever saw. Or they probably say, you know, that business success or that financial deal was a tremendous achievement. But the climax really is behind us. It's the foundation of everything for life and eternity. We're to live from the point of history's climax, finding the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ to be the starting point and the foundation and the focus of our entire lives. And it is only as we have looked and believed and trusted in Jesus Christ that our lives will have the right focus and purpose. The climax of history, but then... A sovereign plan versus a sinful plot. Our text continues here in verses 3 through 5 to unfold. And here is a fascinating verification of God's timing. The chief priests and religious leaders among the Jews, members of the ruling council known as the Sanhedrin, intended to stealthily arrest Jesus and have him killed. But they had no plan to do it during Passover. They were concerned about the mass of people that crowded into Jerusalem, rioting over arresting one so popular as Jesus Christ. And Jesus declared that in two days he would be handed over to crucifixion. The religious leaders planned to do it after the festival so that the target date was at least nine days later. They schemed, they planned... But the death of Jesus Christ would not be according to man's timetable, but according to the divine plan established before the foundation of the world. And just as his birth came in the fullness of time, so did his death at the right moment in history. So what Matthew insists on our recognizing is that the leaders may plot, they may plan, but Jesus, if Jesus dies, he dies as a volunteer Passover sacrifice. Plotting and scheming and betrayal and stealth might highlight the passion of Christ, but we should never lose sight of the fact that this is God's plan. This is a divine plan. This was not something that just happened. And so God Well, I'll make the best of it. No, God didn't just make the best of someone else's plan. It was His plan. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. God drew the horizon, that is, 
That's the meaning of the word determinate, the horizon, and the decreed, uh, he decreed the details. That's the meaning of the foreknowledge. That he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Everything necessary for God to justly declare sinners to be not guilty and furthermore righteous in his sight took place by his careful design. Our salvation is intentional. And that's why it's all of grace. Christ predicted the cross. And the question is this morning, have you embraced the cross? The prediction of Christ's death. We move on to the preparation for Christ's burial. From the prediction to the preparation. From the scheming plans of the religious authorities to the lavish act of worship by one Mary of Bethany. Both Mark and John tell the same story with added details to their Gospels. Luke tells of an earlier anointing in the home of a Pharisee. And we learn from John that the woman who anointed Christ was his friend Mary, who lived with her brother Lazarus and her sister Martha in Bethany. It took place in the home of one called Simon the leper, who presumably was one that Jesus must have healed of leprosy. And quite a few must have gathered from the town of Bethany so that Martha, the queen of hostesses, served the meal. They knew who the good cook was. Just as we find in Luke's gospel, Martha served while Mary again worships. And I want to focus on that worship for a moment here and its significance in this story. Notice, first of all, a beautiful deed. In verses 6 through 9, you have a beautiful deed here. There came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of precious ointment and poured it on his head. Of course, the disciples were upset and called it a waste. Mark tells us that the perfume's value in the disciples' eyes was over 300 pence. That's a sum equal to one year's wages for the average laborer. John adds that the perfume was a pound of spikenard a costly aromatic aromatic, uh, uh, oil that uh, could only be afforded by those with some means. And surely the disciples, for the most part, would have never had the resources to own such a valuable and extravagant perfume. So they reacted to Mary's act of breaking the vial and pouring it on his head. In fact, John tells us that Judas Iscariot was the instigator of the complaining. Surprise, surprise, right? But Jesus rebukes the disciples for troubling Mary. Why trouble ye this woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. It's the idea of why do you give her such a hard time? The use of good here translates a word that is more appropriately conveyed in beauty rather than just good. But let's consider what Mary did. She had likely possessed this vial of perfume for some time, an expensive alabaster flask that would have been designed to prevent the ointment from evaporating, a slender neck 
likely allowed its owner to gently shake a drop or two of its contents without rashly pouring out the entire bottle. Be something like the bottles we have that are capped in such a way that it allows you to carefully measure out the contents. Mark tells us she broke the vial and then poured it out on Christ's head. In a most lavish act that Mary could imagine, she took this valuable treasure and expended it all upon Christ. She did not shake a few drops as though offering him a little bit of what was precious to her. She broke the alabaster vial to release all of its precious contents upon the sacred head of Christ. And she was unconcerned about what others thought, even about what others might perceive as a loss of a valuable commodity. She gladly offered it all to Jesus Christ. Nothing held value to her in comparison to Christ. Nothing would with would she withhold from him whom she recognized to be her Savior and her King. Jesus declared, For she hath wrought a good work upon me. Lavish, extravagant, costly, uninhibited, focused worship. Jesus Christ finds it to be a good or a beautiful work. He received it with pleasure and commendation. And the tight-fisted disciples failed to understand the moment that the Lord of glory reclined at that table with them and deserved the costliest worship. They reacted to her act rather than standing in awe before the one who is worthy of our lavish worship. You see, that's what we really do when we worship. We offer to Jesus Christ all that is most valuable to us. What's your most valuable possession? Are you willing to give it up for the Lord Jesus Christ? We offer to Him our treasures. We offer to Him our lives and our families. We express to Him our love and our praise and our affection. The depths of our hearts release the storehouse of honor received for Him alone. And as Mary, we discover that true worship is uninhibited by those who are around us. Her singular focus upon Jesus Christ rather than whether or not those about her would approve of her devotion. And sometimes, young people... We're concerned about what others are going to think if we talk about the Lord, aren't we? But you know what, young people? You're not alone. There's adults in here are concerned about that too. Do you offer this kind of worship to Christ, the Lord? Genuine worship is the supreme service a Christian can offer to Christ. There's a time for ministering to the poor, the sick, the naked, and the imprisoned. There's a time for witnessing to the lost and seeking to lead them to the Savior. There's a time for discipling new believers and helping them to grow in faith. There's a time for careful study and teaching of God's Word. But above all else, the Lord requires His people to give true worship. 
without which anything else they may do in his name is empty and powerless. A beautiful deed. Secondly, we see the seizing of the moment. Bothered by what Mary had done, the disciples evidently murmured among themselves about, oh, that's a waste. Some likely were genuine about wanting to sell the perfume and help the feed the poor. Almsgiving accompanied the Passover feast, so that might have been a normal response. That might have been on their minds. Judas Iscariot wanted to pilfer the money, as John tells us. But Jesus changes the whole complexion of their thinking. He says, For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. Even Moses foretold about the, that the poor would always be among them in Deuteronomy chapter 15, and so they, would be, uh, they were to be generous toward them. Jesus had earlier commended the feeding of the hungry and clothing the naked in his name. In chapter 25, he taught about being merciful in chapter 5, about being generous in that same chapter and giving to the poor in chapter 6. And yet at this point, he teaches us a very important truth. He will not always be bodily with the disciples. His death, resurrection, ascension would soon take place and they were to seize the moment for extravagant worship just as Mary did. Obviously, Christ is not among us this morning bodily. There's a difference in the manner of these words, but not in the measure. Though Christ is not bodily among us, there are those special occasions when it seems that he makes himself known to us in extraordinary ways. Our senses are heightened, our minds are sharpened, our spirits are inflamed with consciousness that Jesus Christ is in our midst. I wonder, do you seize such moments for extravagant worship and praise for the Lord? It might be in the midst of a worship service that we're usually conscious of the Lord speaking to us through His Word or through some uh, hymn, some song that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us of some area of sin and some need for obedience? Do we seize the moment by acting upon the gracious work of God in our midst? Do we obey Him? Do we deal with our sin? Do we make the lavish offering of ourselves and all of our resources, even including our time? Seizing the moment. And then thirdly, there's the fragrance of death. Jesus identifies Mary's instinctive act of worship, for in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. The use of burial spices and perfumes for decaying bodies was common in that time, except in the case of criminals. Remember Nicodemus bringing burial spices to the garden tomb. But Jesus focuses on his death and directs the disciples' attention to his impending death. Mary grasped something of this so that her act of lavish worship served to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. Two days later, he would be beaten and lashed until the flesh lay open and quivering on his back. He would be taken to Golgotha, the execution site, 
Scores of criminals had been tortured and executed there. Their flesh and blood would have splattered along the ground and the stones. It's no stretch of to imagine filthy Golgotha, Golgotha with the stench of decaying blood and the tissue in the air. Yet the aroma of pure spikenard that anointed the throne, thorn-crowned head and pierced feet of Jesus might still offer a signal of the sweetness of the life that his death would provide. Now many have died for good causes. And they've died to liberate oppressed people and to save a nation from tyranny. That's the history of our country. Many have given their lives for the freedom that we enjoy this morning. A freedom that's once again being challenged. But Jesus Christ alone died to set us free from sin. The sweetness and the aroma of his death lingers among us still after 2,000 some years. Has the fragrance of Christ crucified scented your life? And then we come to a gospel legacy. After 20 centuries of Christianity, everywhere the gospel is preached, we hear the story of Mary of Bethany's lavish worship and the devotion to Jesus Christ, her Savior. It's just as Jesus had declared. He knew about that his death would encompass the salvation of generations through the vast expanse of the world. And he says, Verily I say unto you, wheresoever the gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. And so we remember, even as Jesus had prophesied here, We remember by the reading of this story, by the preaching of this account, it's a memorial for her. We remember her devotion and we find it stirring us to more lavish worship of Jesus Christ, I trust. But we can do this because the gospel is preached in the whole world. The gospel was preached to some of your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. The gospel was preached under your hearing. What Jesus Christ did on the cross, He did for sinners of every race, nationality, language, and culture. Mary celebrated His death in an act of anointing Him. How do you celebrate the death of Jesus Christ as He atoned for your sins at the cross? Do you offer him all that you are and all that you have? Mary gave us a wonderful picture in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. No gift is too extravagant or too costly to express our worship and our devotion for Jesus Christ. Perhaps all the talk about death of Jesus Christ makes some people uncomfortable. Many would prefer a religion that is void of a bloody death of the Son of God on the cross. They, that may be their preference, but you know what? That's not God's plan for saving sinners. Because that death of the Son of God belongs, that plan belongs to the cross of Christ to which I point you for forgiveness and life 
and the foundation for all eternity. Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen Savior of sinners, is worthy of our most lavish devotion and worship. Let's bow our heads in prayer.